0: It's back, the Reckless Renewables Rally. Make a statement where it truly counts, this time in Canberra. Join us on the Parliament House lawn at 10am on Tuesday, February 6th, the first session of Parliament for 2024. People from across the country, coastal and regional areas are rallying for the government to stop the reckless rollout of environmentally harmful, unreliable and costly so-called renewable projects. These include wind, solar and high-voltage transmission line projects. Listen to speakers representing the federal and state governments, community organisations and environmentalists, all accompanied by great music and entertainment. Bring your flags, banners, signs and most importantly, your voice and ears to support rural and regional Australia. Together, let's ensure that the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, and the Australian Government take responsibility and stop the risks and costs associated with their reckless and obsessive rush to adopt these so-called renewable energy projects. What's on the line is Australia's national interests, our economy, our security and the well-being of our environment both now and into the future. Join us in Canberra. Together we can make a difference. Not clean, not green, not net zero.
1: No one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. We have a massive power
0: and it's the power to say no. They, they put all these words on these flies and it means nothing. It, it, it's garbage.
1: We're all going to die. If doctors are gaslighting
2: patients. If you keep silent, then this is what's going to happen and
1: they'll make us silent. I would rather paper cut my eyelids than have anything to do with <laughs> exactly. We are one people, one flag, one Australia.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex-Candidates. My name is Tripp, Stephen Tripp, joined by Mr. Adam Zara. Now, Adam, happy
2: 100th episode. How exciting. 100th 100. Wow, this is really, really good. We never thought we'd get here, did we? Well, not at the start anyway, you know. Oh, I, I don't
0: think we put too much thought in it. We just did it and uh, now we're here and we've come a long way from our humble beginnings. Uh, straight after the federal election, but it's been quite a ride. So, mate, thanks thanks for joining, you know, doing this together. And every week we're, we're here and we're trying to get information out and talk to important guests and
2: everything. So, uh, so yeah, it's been quite a ride. Well, thank you, Stephen, as well, because it was your idea. Like you came up with it. You said, hey, let's just do a podcast. So you've done a few little podcasts in the past Um, you know, we'll not mention the coin noodling podcast, (laughs) but, um, you know, I sat through that and I'm like, okay, that's really cool. And got a pretty, I got a little bit interested actually in the coin stuff as well. So that was pretty cool. But, um, yeah, so, you know, that's what happened. It was just, um, two, you know, blokes who ran, you know, under the same color for, for, for a time and, um, hit it off and said, Hey, let's just keep getting some, um, you know, real information out to the public. Because I think, um, for both of us, and especially for me, you know, running, you know, mingling with politicians, running in politics, and getting heavily involved in it, you know, you can see that, you know, there is this information out there, and what happens is, you know, especially through the COVID era and all that kind of stuff, you know, there was the other side was never getting any any voice, and I think that's, you know, that kind of drove us to do this to get, you know, the voices out of, you know, people from you know, an alternate view of what's going on and um, get people heard.
0: So uh, we've got a little bit of housekeeping before we bring our special guest on tonight. The first thing we've got to mention is the Reckless Renewables Rally is coming up this Tuesday at Parliament House down in Canberra at 10am. Adam and uh, Richard Storch and myself are all jumping in the car and heading down there. It's going to be quite a a road trip.
2: I'm uh, looking forward to the 4am wake up. I've got to tell you that. That's that's (laughs) something that's going to be quite hard.
0: I'm going to be working the night before, heading straight to Adam's place in Campbelltown, straight after work, here, get in the car, go down to Canberra, and then i got to get back and work that night. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a hell of a trip. But look, it, 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 in all seriousness, uh, we've got to support the farmers. A lot of these people are facing these issues every single day. They don't feel like they've got a voice. So they're all rallying down in Canberra to, to put it to the politicians, get in their face, uh, let their, the, the, the story be heard and it must be gaining traction they must be doing something right because GetUp was attacking them this week uh also some uh, irrelevant politicians or so-called politicians that weren't invited uh were attacking the farmers which i thought was disgraceful uh, the, these, uh, you know, saying that the coal industry is behind them. Look, I'm, I'm loosely associated with the people organising it. I've, I've seen what they're doing. It's completely grassroots. They're just people that have had nowhere else to go. It's little groups all around Australia in different areas, all coming together. And this is what we need. We need people to get active and engage in politics. And this is what the, our system is meant to be. So uh, if you can get down to Canberra, please do
2: so because I think it's going to be one hell of an event. Yeah, I think I'm, I agree with you, Stephen. Like, you know, there's, you know, if you want to be heard, you've got to make a noise, and it's time for us to make a noise. Otherwise, our farmers are going to have to band together and do what they're doing overseas. You don't even see any of that on the media, you know. Yeah. Like, if they come after the farmers, how is it? You know, you, you know, you, you need a lawyer, what a few, to maybe a few times in your life, you know. But you need a farmer every day. That's this, you know, you, you know, you need a doctor every now and then when you're feeling not well you know but you need a farmer every day and and the thing is you keep attacking the farmers you keep attacking um their way of life and making it harder for them everyone else's life is going to get harder after so yeah. um definitely a grassroots campaign so um get on board and get down there and, and and make sure that we've got our farmers looked after so that we all have our food in the shops
0: now quickly i also want to bring up last week's guest victor dl that was really uh great interview and if you uh liked victor please um Follow him on Rumble and uh, and uh, you know all, all, everything that he's doing with his podcast. But he gave us a shout out Adam throughout the through the week, encouraging people to listen to that interview. I just want to play a, a clip uh, of what he said on his podcast this week.
1: And one and one last thing that I want to say, I'm very much hopeful that these ex candidates are going to become candidates again. Because for me, when I think about what um, I would like a politician to be. Um, the characteristics, the personality, um, and the and the traits that they have. I see all of that in in both Stephen and Adam. You know, I see uh, first and foremost, a genuine love for the country that is Australia. The other thing that I really personally um, picked up from Stephen and Adam with they're just how welcoming they they made me feel. Um, and that that that's something that is comes from being a, a genuinely nice. Person and not someone that's just doing this um, for the likes and the clicks and, and for the fame. Um, and, and that that really connected with me and that's really important to me as well. Of course, they were also incredibly professional. Um, I think both of them, it's pretty safe to say, were natural-born leaders. They spoke all the time about the, the issues that are facing everyday Australians every single day and they spoke about those issues in a genuine and passionate way. And I think that they can really speak to um, the everyday life of everyday Australians because they live it. And and that's important because I think so many of our leaders today have completely um, detached from the reality of what it is like to get to Woolies and to not be able to afford your groceries, to have to go and put back a loaf of bread or even multiple items just because you, you can't afford it because you've got bills, you've got rent, you've got your mortgage and everything is just going up to an insane amount. Um So I would encourage the ex-candidates to become candidates again, just while I'm in plugging mode in about.
0: So wow. uh, I, just, I know that was a little bit lengthy, but I wanted to play that because I just wanted everyone to see that Victor is a class act. And uh, thank you very much for Victor. Firstly,
2: for coming on the
0: the podcast, but also for giving us that shout out throughout the week.
2: Yeah, that's really awesome, and it's really good to hear from um, our guests and people to you know really understand and they understand what we're doing and why we do it. It's not for the clicks. It's not for the money because there's no money or there's not <laughs> there's no money in it. But um, what we're doing for is. Um, you know, is to get the voice uh, opinions out and and that alternate that alternate side of um, politics out there um, to the public as best we can. Yep. One last thing before we
0: get our guest on, uh, there is a little bit of money involved. If you guys choose to uh, support us, you can head to uh, Buy Me a Coffee uh and uh, flick us a donation there if you choose um some people have been so it's a really great great way of people to show their appreciation to us i suppose Uh, and we've also got a member on there now so if there is membership available hopefully when we're down in uh, canberra adam and i can put something together quickly for uh for our first member so uh, that's all very exciting as well
2: yeah excellent
0: Okay, so we'll bring him on. Uh, Our special guest tonight is uh, Jordan Ditloff. He's the National Secretary of the Libertarian Party of Australia. Uh, He also has a postgraduate in law and he's dug deep into this very concerning misinformation and disinformation legislation that is being proposed by the federal government. A lot of people uh, are wondering what this actually is. It, it seems to be evolving and uh, there's a lot of talk out there, but we really want to nut down of what the the actual detail is. So, uh, Jordan, how are you tonight? Welcome to the ex Candidates.
3: I'm good. Thanks, guys. It's hit 30 degrees here in Ballarat, Victoria, which is normally four degrees colder than everywhere else in Victoria. So Ballarat heat is uh, not something we're accustomed to. A bit of global boiling wouldn't go astray. I reckon it would make the environment in Ballarat nicer and more enjoyable. But So forgive me for being a little bit casual. It's um, all action stations here because it's bloody hot.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no worries, mate, and good to have you on board. And um, I don't know what the temperature temperature is out here in Town. My computer's not telling me, but oh wait, there it is. It's thirty seven degrees in my little um, in my little office at the moment, and uh, the air conditioner is not um, not as quiet as it needs to be. So I'm sitting here in my own little um, uh, what do you call it greenhouse, oh, wow. enjoying the effects that. of carbon. <laughs>
0: Now, Jordan, uh, with this misinformation, disinformation legislation, what w- I guess the first thing is what would you like our audience to know about it? What, what's some of the main points that you would really like to get across to people?
3: Well, look, Stephen, um, most of your listeners would probably know that libertarians disagree with almost all the laws that the government wants to pass. We're very anti-government, anti-expansion of government powers, so we generally oppose a lot of what the government agenda is. But this bill really is something truly evil and horrific. I'm going to use those words very, um, very consciously. Listening to you guys talk on the intro about what brought you guys together and what you're trying to do here with this podcast, this bill really goes to the heart of that. What this bill is trying to do, it's trying to basically destroy the digital town square that is allowing people to gather and share dissenting thoughts and ideas. And through COVID platforms like Signal, like Telegram, um, other social media platforms like that. Not so much Facebook and Twitter during COVID, and we'll get into that. But um, really what this legislation is targeted at is podcasts like this, is people speaking and gathering in the modern version of the town square, which is um, social media and digital platforms, and saying things that are awkward, uncomfortable, or go against the, the government line of what is truth. And that's really what the ACMA misinformation and disinformation bill is about. And what it seeks to do is it seeks to give ACMA, which is the Australian Communication and Media Authority, the power to actually enforce and step in and impose uh, basically binding codes and restrictions on social media platforms who fall under the code, which is basically all of them, to restrict what information they can show and present on on their platforms. And the definitions that are involved in that are really pretty chilling because they basically say that if content contains information that is false, misleading or deceptive, and it's not excluded content, and excluded content means it doesn't have any of the exclusions that the bill sets out, and that's another concern I've got, which I'll go into more in a moment, uh, then and if the misinformation and disinformation is likely to cause serious harm or contribute to serious harm, not not cause, contribute to, which is an even lower threshold, um, The most worrying thing about this definition is that what you would think would be a pretty critical, um, central part of a bill like this, that is, how do you determine what is false, misleading or deceptive, is completely absent from the draft bill. There is no definition of what is true or who gets to determine what is true. And what that will mean if this bill is passed and if this legislation becomes law is that the government will say to social media platforms, holding a loaded gun to their head, you know what the right thing is you know, you know what you should and shouldn't say with a, with a wink and that will be for them to determine and what will happen is social media platforms will take a risk-averse economic approach because they face percentage fines of their global revenue if they don't comply with this legislation like just stop and think about that for a moment i'm not talking about percentage of profit in the australian market i'm not talking about anything i'm talking about global revenue For a company like Twitter is potentially what these companies could be fined if they don't comply with this legislation. So it's just absolutely madness. And the lack of these key definitions, the presence of things that are categorised as serious harm, which are really, really concerning for anybody who's lived through the last couple of years, and you guys have been candidates who've been on the Hustings and understand what the major parties consider to be harmful or concerning and it's not what the average person or the average voter would really be worried about it's basically what is uncomfortable or awkward for the government what is going to challenge their narrative so some of the harms they list in the acma guidance note that comes with the draft bill include um economic or financial harm to the australian economy harm to the australian environment and if you don't think that's going to be used by the government to push some of the narratives that you're coming out to fight against on tuesday you'd be very very i've got a bridge to sell you um, but one of the funniest examples I think they give that I think is really relevant because it's been proven to be absolutely incorrect by recent events is harm to the integrity of the democratic processes or electoral institutions of Australia. So, basically, they want to make it illegal and categorise it as serious harm to say that the AEC can be biased. When you've had a case with Craig Kelly and the AEC only a couple of months ago where the judge actually found that the AEC had adopted an inexplicable and oppositional approach to Mr Kelly, not telling him where supposedly breaching signs were um, after telling him that he was in breach and they were going to find him, and then they wouldn't tell him where the breach occurred. And he won that case, and they want to make that kind of allegation to say that it would be biased towards Craig Kelly, serious harm and misinformation that could trigger all these penalties if, if that kind of content was posted. So. And the final thing that I really want to talk about that is probably the scariest part of this bill is that it grants these massive exemptions that you could drive a truck through to some of the least trustworthy institutions that have proven themselves over the last three years. And when I say proven, I mean Twitter suppressed COVID-19 information, um, basically cancelled or shadow banned accounts. That's all come out after Elon Musk has purchased Twitter. So we have facts on the record that there were examples of social media, of government of government-owned agencies, of mainstream media collusion and the exemption categories under this bill are government, ABC and SBS and mainstream media. That's the exceptions that they include in this bill. So who does that leave us with? You guys. Yeah. <laughs> and the ordinary Australian, basically. And jo- Jordan, just a quick question on that. What Where does it leave,
2: like, the minor party then? So, like, you know, on a, on a campaign like I'm coming up to an election um, on a campaign when you're out in public speaking, okay, and you're going to be like like I know the Libertarian Party, I know um, One Nation, I know UAP, we all have our, you know, we're all similar but we're all a little bit different and we're always we're talking out against policy about legislation, about upcoming legislation um, and all these kind of things. We're definitely already speaking about the misinformation, disinformation bill, so we're already talking against it. Um, what, if, that, if that bill was to pass, and what are the implications of, say, Stephen or I um, going out to a public forum, a public speaking event when we get invited as candidates to go to, and then saying what we say and, and talk out against the narrative? Like, I've, I've done so many, we've done and I've done so many speeches against, you know, these reckless renewables, which is against government narratives. Speaking in public, will we be fined or implicated in, uh, you know, criminal charges or something like that?
3: So, the government's been really, really sneaky the way they've designed this bill. Because the short answer to your question is no, it wouldn't impact you. But by taking away the right of that view to be expressed and platformed, they don't have to. So they're almost cutting the legs out from under the table rather than attacking the table front, which is quite clever. Um, Libertarians hate government, but where. You know, we're never going to deny that they're a worthy opponent. They're they're often very creative in the way they think about these things. Because that has implications as well for the ability of citizens like yourself, who, let's say you're at this town hall you were describing, you've made statements against reckless renewables. I'm sure on Tuesday there'll be many statements made that are against the government narrative. If this ACMA bill had passed last year, then you could be standing there in front of thousands of people who go to your rally, but nobody would hear or see those views because the digital platforms, the digital town squares that you need to convey that view. And social media is the great equaliser, right? It gives a voice and gives a platform which traditionally had only been available to government and mainstream media. And that was a a big source of power for them. And they are desperate to try to regain control of narratives. So you, as an individual, wouldn't face criminal charges. You wouldn't be silenced or prevented from speaking, but you would be prevented from being heard and seen. And that, in a way, is a lot more insidious and harder to defend against because you couldn't take the government to the High Court to say that they were imposing on your implied freedom of political communication. Only the platform, who are being dictated to and censored, for want of a better word, could do that. And what platform would care enough about the individual who's being suppressed to take the risk of going to the High Court and challenging the government? So it's it's a really... You know, it's actually... It's almost worse than, than what you just described as being your fear because... If no one can hear or see you, it's a bit like the, the line in the matrix, you know, what good's a phone call if you're unable to speak? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so that's that's literally what they're doing. They're trying to change the rules of the game to stop certain people from playing it.
0: Well, one of the huge reasons why we started this podcast in the first place was because I noticed that the federal election running for a minor party, the media wouldn't touch you. You wouldn't get any traction at all. Even if you put out a press release and uh, you send it out to every media organisation in, in Sydney they wouldn't touch it because the best way that they can control you is by ignoring you and giving you nothing so we've at least tried to make a little bit of an effort to create our own media to get uh, you know to give candidates a platform in uh, at election time and we've done that in the past we did it for the state election we've done it, we also did it for the Victorian state election where we gave candidates a platform where they may not have uh, had an interview opportunity the whole way through their uh, candidacy. So uh, as you're describing, you might be able to go stand on a soapbox somewhere and, and with a bullhorn and, and, and have your say, but you won't be able to come on a digital platform like this and be able to do it. But uh, we definitely support free speech on this platform uh, and we, we do so while we still can. So I'm going to put the link in the chat. If anyone wants to call in and ask Jordan, uh, a question or, uh, or even just come in and make a comment. We're going to have a complete open forum tonight because we're going to try and put forward the message that free speech is incredibly important and we need to have platforms like this so we can flesh out topics. I think it's in, it is incredibly important. But I found out um, a, a week or so ago when I interviewed uh, Lee Evans, who's in the UK, and um, he, he was actually in the south of France at the time. And I was—he was saying, "How can I promote your podcast?" And I said, "Well, we we mainly our audience is mainly on Rumble. If you can share out the Rumble link, that would be great." And he said, "Well, I'm, I might share your YouTube link because in France, Rumble is is not." a thing because the government tried in the government in France tried to re- impose restrictions on rumble there and uh yes rumble's not a thing now in France you can't access rumble in France so if this misinformation disinformation legislation comes in will we see similar things here in Australia where we may not be able to access rumble or telegram or some of these other platforms anymore
3: yeah, absolutely, and that's a really great point. And I see you guys are streaming on Rumble and YouTube at the same time. And a lot of people I watch and people I know who are creating content like yourselves—they're looking with one eye to the door and trying to create parachutes that they might be able to move to if the situation with YouTube and Facebook and others becomes too um, too risky, I suppose. Um, and as you say, in countries like France and the UK, these things are already well underway. And this is something I really wanted to talk with you guys about that I'm sure many of your listeners suspect but may not sort of have the smoking gun to or fully understand the links to but this isn't just something that's happening in Australia this is a global movement and you know at the beginning of the, the podcast you talked about you don't need a lawyer every day that's true as a, as a law graduate so I'm just at the beginning of my legal career I hope I don't see clients every day <laughs> you know you really don't and, and at least at the beginning now I'm, I'm Pretty new. Maybe one day I'll be jaded and cynical and I'll, I'll change my mind and want to see something <laughs> more often. But I genuinely hope that our clients don't have to see us. Um, but with something like this, so what I'm saying is, I'm not someone who doesn't have an understanding of the law or the way Australia's international obligations work. And I'm not a wild conspiracy theorist. And what I'm, what I'm going to tell you is that there is a pandemic preparedness treaty currently being drafted by the World Health Organization. That zero draft will probably be put to the World Health Organisation in May. I'm going to read to you from Article 17 of the draft Pandemic Preparedness Bill, and it says, the parties commit, and the parties will be Australia, because Australia is involved in drafting this bill as well, the parties commit to increase science, public health and pandemic literacy in the population, as well as access to information on pandemics and their effects, and tackle false misleading misinformation or disinformation, including through promotion of international cooperation. So in every country in the world right now, from the US to the UK to France to all these countries, the US is a little bit more protected because they've got constitutionally enshrined freedom of speech. Um, the global elites and the powers that be have taken lessons from the COVID pandemic and they use words like infodemic. They use words like... So basically wrong think. So it's no coincidence that Rumble has been cracked down on in France. In England, they told Rumble to take certain information down and they pressured them to try to remove Russell Brand to deplatform him with some of the allegations that came to light, that are completely unproven in court at the moment. He has his right to the presumption of innocence and his day in court. And on the basis of unproven allegations, there were government ministers contacting Rumble, trying to pressure them to deplatform Russell Brand. And Rumble, to their great credit, said no and told them to take a long walk off a shore pier. So um, in France, they may have done that and then therefore been banned. And I suspect... In Australia, what you will see if this legislation were to go through would be some platforms like Rumble, I think probably Twitter, um, now with Elon Musk and some of the steps he's taken where he's actually refused to provide certain information and statistics to ACMA on a voluntary basis. Um, and he's, he's basically said, I'll oh, cop the fine. In <laughs> not very any words, because that's a dangerous thing to say to government, but he's pretty much said, Well, what are you going to do about it if I don't give you this information? And that's his great credit. Um, But there will be other platforms that don't feel like they're in a position to do that. Um, So I think that, you know, Australia could end up in a situation where it's like North Korea, it's the Hermit Kingdom. There might be some apps that you cannot access from Australia because they refuse to comply with these draconian laws. And that would just be a clown world beyond belief. I never thought I would say what I just said, (laughs) that, you know, Australia could be cut off from key things around the world because of the approach our government's taking. Um, Well, Jordan... Sorry, mate. Um, how does
2: it, like, all right? So w- we understand the misinformation, disinformation bills now, start, like coming after the digital forum. But how would, um, don't forget, there wasn't always a digital platform. There wasn't. We, you know, that's the new thing since the two thousands, pretty much. Um, and we've all, like, you know, taken on on board. And the politics, politicians, minor parties, everyone's kind of used it to their advantage, the best they can. Um, what, what's stopping? that um, misinformation, dis- disinformation bill from becoming not digitally, like, based and then moving on to, like, the old way of doing things. So, like, if you were on a bullhorn out a shopping centre, like, you know, can we do ground roots campaigning, um, you know, as One Nation, as um, UAP, as the Libertarian Party. I mean, I speak to a lot of the candidates, the ex-candidates from the Libertarian Party around my area, um, and... Um, you know what happens is you have um what what happens if we're all endorsed we've all got our little endorsements and everything's on on every bit of paper everything we hand out right so they know who's handing it out and who's responsible for it it's all authorized and all that kind of stuff if i went and did letterbox dropping so okay misinformation disinformation bill comes in i'm not allowed to use obviously i can i can put a video up and no one's going to put it on like i won't broadcast it um and i start Getting down, you know, putting leather to the pavement, handing out letters and bits of paper, and speaking out loud, doing public forums, not even public forums, just getting on the bullhorn at the side of a street with the sign, you know, saying, "Hey, you know, reckless renewables suck," um, or something like that. What what would stop the government then enforcing the misinformation disinfo or adding an amendment to say, "Hey, you're not even allowed to share." paper information, you're not allowed to even speak it. You, you know, we know that the government creeps, just like lifestyle creep. You know, you start earning $1,000 more a week, you do well, learn how to spend that exactly. real quick. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you know. to me it just seems like the soft way in and then Absolutely. it's going to get yeah, hardcore. No, you're 100% right,
3: uh, Adam. We, we can make a libertarian of you yet, perhaps. The, uh-huh. the, the government That's is... what they all say. <laughs> It is very much a slippery slope, and there's no logical reason why the government wouldn't do what you've suggested. In fact, even though they haven't talked about it in the context of misinformation, disinformation, the electoral integrity reforms, That's and whenever government calls something like that, you know, you, you know something's really bad when they call it a name that sounds really good, you know. So the protecting electoral integrity reforms that, that the government's talking about bringing in, where they're going to be uh, looking to limit political donations from people like Clive Palmer to minor parties like all the parties you mentioned, UAP, One Nation, we've had donations from Clive Palmer in the past. Um, these kind of laws come in under the cover of saying, oh, we need to clean up politics, we need to make sure that people aren't getting misled or confused. We had to change our name federally because they changed the legislation to say that the word Liberal belongs to the Liberal Party, uh, despite it being an extremely illiberal thing to do. I don't think they see the, the irony or sense of humour in it, to be honest. But basically there is nothing to stop this, this from being the beginning of a slippery slope towards those kinds of things. And I can absolutely see a scenario where in the context of this electoral integrity push, uh, misinformation or disinformation provisions around approved electoral material and approved candidate authorisations, et cetera, I see absolutely no reason why that wouldn't be a logical next step, particularly if what they've already proposed. So if they were to bring in the misinformation, disinformation bill, I hope they don't, and we're going to be fighting really hard to make sure they don't. I'll give you a bit of an update on where it's at at the moment. But if they brought that in, if they brought this electoral integrity stuff in, and if you still saw voters abandoning the major parties in droves towards minor parties looking for somewhere that they can find integrity and real people, then you could you could imagine they will just keep ramping up. They will just continually keep changing the rules to try to achieve the outcome they want, which is to protect their political cartel. So... Yeah. I see no reason why the trends they're trying to stop won't continue and why they won't keep going to greater and greater lengths to try to prevent it.
2: Yeah, that's what I was kind of alluding to with what I was saying because I I agree with that completely. I think that, you know, like I had a 10% swing towards me last election, um, even though my opponent, the Labor opponent, um, gained also gained a bit more ground, right, but Liberal lost a lot as well. So what happens is you wouldn't want to see you know even even to the fact where there was a couple of booths that I actually beat Liberal in, which is you know pretty much unheard of. Um, but I mean I think the minor parties did pretty well last state election in in, in New South Wales anyway.
3: Um, so yeah, well, credit- we, saw, we saw John Roddick of the Libertarian Party elected, so that was that's a right, incredible yeah. Result. And, and he's and he's really been carving it up in New South Wales state parliament, so it's made a big difference already.
2: Yeah, I, I go to. I've I've seen him speak. I've go. To, I've I've met up with him a couple of times. You know, um, at different um, libertarian events and things like that. Just because I'm, um, you know, I like to hear, um, you know, the libertarian side of things as well, because it keeps you a bit balanced. And you know, you don't want to, you know, you got to hear sides of every everyone's sides a bit. So it's um pretty good. But yeah, I just think that that's what's going to happen. I, I I and I would imagine that we can see like you know in places like Argentina and things like that where. The, you know, everyone's kind of shifting and ground, uh, sorry, ground for the right, like the right side of politics, I guess, um, is is gaining, people are still going to source it out and find it. So if you haven't, if you've got an outlet or if you're vocal and you can provide some sort of outlet, not digitally, right, I mean, help. I've got people's ad, we'll send letters to people, you know what I mean? And then they can write back if it has to be. I mean, we used to live like that, so we could live like that again. And I, I could imagine that the creep would be, Pretty quick, and, I, and if and if the trend does, the pendulum starts swinging to our side of politics. Um, that um, the government would press down on us very hard. They would, you know, put you, the foot on the proverbial throat. You know.
3: Yeah, well, they they are terrified. I think, and they're very fragile and vulnerable, far more vulnerable than I think people realise. Um, the I'll give you an example. The Libertarian Party was recently federally re-registered. And in the process of getting federally re-registered after having to change our name, which I'm actually grateful to the Liberals at the time for doing because I believe Libertarian Party is a much better name. I was probably one of the foremost advocates pushing for us to take the name we have. And I believe that's been borne out as the right decision by the rise of ACT in New Zealand, Javier Malay's ascension. If we had been some other name other than Libertarian Party, it would have been pretty awkward, I think. It would have been a big missed opportunity to take advantage of that momentum that's out in the world. When we went to re-register with a 1,500 member requirement, that I'm sure they didn't intend us to meet either. You know, all these hurdles. You know, it's like it's like the you know the goalposts kept shifting. But when we actually applied to re-register, the 11th hour before the um, objections were permitted, so the, the limit before you could uh, be registered, about three hours before the time limit to object, we got an objection from the Liberal Party, the National Party, and the LNP in Queensland trying to say that we couldn't use the, the initials LP in our logo. So so, this, so uh, this initial LP, they basically were trying to say that that's the intellectual property and electoral property of the Liberal Party. Really? And absolutely, yeah. So they fought us tooth and nail to get re-registered. We're living in their head rent-free. And, you know, they are terrified. They use the, the word confusion to try to sort of raise all these barriers and... I said to them in my response to the objection, I said, your party members are confused, but they're not confused because we're trying to trick them. They're confused because you're not living up to your values and you're not representing what your we believe statement says for Menzies. That, that's why voters are confused. That's wrong. So that's my point is that the major parties are vulnerable. They are scared of the continued departure away from major parties to minor parties. And I see no reason based on... Their actions and what they've given the Australian public, but that tide is going to reverse. I've
0: got a, a couple of comments here. Carla's uh, asked Would the ACMA bill uh, stop people from talking about climate exaggeration? There's also a comment uh, from Nick about uh, the referendum and would have mm. stopped people campaigning against The Voice. And we are putting a lot of focus on the minor parties, but there are good coalition members like Jacinta Price, like Warren Mundine uh, and others that, that spoke out during the referendum and supposedly under a Labor government or, or, or even uh, uh, any sort of government could attack those good liberals out there because there are good liberals that are standing up and we need to support them as well. Um, it all comes down to defining what misinformation and disinformation is. Uh, essentially, what is truth? And truth is subjective a lot of the time. How, how is it possible? And I guess, this, I guess we all know the answer, happened. how is it possible for any government organisation to be able to determine what is misinformation and what is disinformation?
3: Yeah, well, that's a great question. But just quickly on that point, I agree with you. There are good people in the Liberal Party. We need to support them, but the Liberal Party also needs to support them. People like Jeremy, yeah. Green, Matt Cavanagh yeah. and others, yeah. they're not going to win the pre-selection. Thing. He
0: just lost his pre-selection.
3: Absolutely right. So, you know, they need to be supported and the Liberal Party needs to do that as well. Yep. Uh, my background is I, I was once a young Liberal. I, I sort of came up through the Liberal Party. A lot of people that I ran with and were sort of part of my friendship group at that time are now state and federal MPs, James Patterson, Evan Mulholland, others. So there are good people in the Liberal Party, but unfortunately the Liberal Party doesn't reward good people and that's what needs to change. So
0: I, just, I, just, I just did a whole interview with Matthew Kamanzuli and we spoke exactly about that. So. Yes,
3: Matt's, uh, Matt's very good value and I, I have a lot of time for Matt. Uh, yeah. I think he's probably uh, martyring himself on a lost cause and the uh, Libertarian Party and others are wide open arms for him when he decides that's that going <laughs> <ready> to <laughs> stop barking up. But he's very stubborn and I wish him all the best and, and a strong arm. Well, but sometimes we need some
0: stubborn people out there to really...
3: <laughs> well, well, the Liberal Party actually proposed this ACMA legislation. They went to the election yeah. promising that they would hold corporations to account for misinformation and disinformation. So this isn't even a Labor Party legislative agenda priority. This is a Liberal Party Scott Morrison special. So uh, we have them to thank for the fact that this bill is even in front of us. But to answer your question and to answer the comments questions, absolutely, when they're talking about harm to the Australian environment, if you don't think that definition of harm under the Act would be used to silence dissenting thoughts about the lifespan of solar, the amount of solar-powered panels that can't be renewed and can't be uh, recycled, the amount of wasted energy and subsidies required to generate a really small, tiny percentage of, of energy that's super unreliable. If you think that saying things like that wouldn't be characterised by ACMA as harm to the Australian environment, then you're probably not cynical enough. Uh, I, I think most people watching this program would certainly <laughs> think that and agree with that. And what a- with, respect to, with respect to the voice, um, absolutely. You saw immediately, as soon as the voice referendum started to swing against the yes oh, vote, as soon as the information- result... Because I was watching and I was listening and I could hear them instantly, misinformation, disinformation. That was immediately their response. Never,
0: Never, ever let a good crisis go to waste. They knew they were going to lose and they shifted straight to this straight away. They
3: pivoted immediately. So day one, and I said this to many people within our party, I said day one on Sunday after the referendum, they will be using this to argue for misinformation, disinformation. And what they're really saying is that if you disagree with them and with the the narrative of the government of the day, then you are an idiot that can't be capable of forming a critical thought of your own. You must have been misled or deceived. Like, it's the heart of arrogance to argue that anyone who disagrees with you isn't a reasonable person. You know, in the law they have this saying, reasonable minds can disagree. And that's a fundamental part of Western society. That's what our empirical science, that's what our enlightenment values, all of the, the great things that our classical Western society and history have given us depend on the idea that people can disagree, that there are things which people can disagree on, and reasonably so, and there's not necessarily always a right or wrong when it comes to values or political views. So, yeah, I think the whole idea that there is some objective arbiter of truth um, that can sort of sort through what's real and what's not real, especially given the examples I've talked about um, where there's been like smoking gun instances of government trying to influence and control what people can see, um, I think that we should be very, very sceptical of the government claiming to know what is true and what is best for the Australian people to hear.
2: 100% agreed. And I was just going to say, like, there's been some big revelations as well, you know, regarding EVs, like the cars, the electric cars. You know, we've had some major, major um, corporations such as BMW, BMW, uh, Ford Motor Company and Toyota Motor Company um, talk about reducing the expansion of their electric vehicles. So this is this goes to show you how much of electric vehicles is a hoax and a fraud anyway, okay? So they talk about how the uptake of cars, and there was a, a, an article recently, just the other day, Daily Mail or something, saying that, you know, EV is Australia's favourite car now um, or car purchase, Um, and they're reducing their production on those. So they're halting not halting their production but winding their production back on EVs, and and they're broadcasting it. So BMW are working hard on getting their hydrogen engine to work. Um, um, Ford Motor Company said that they're going to still produce uh, uh, petrol cars for a long time. Toyota said that, and from the start, the Toyota outset said hybrids had more of a chance... Of surviving than um, a full EV car in the first place, so they've always been pretty, and they're a conser- very, very conservative m- car manufacturer. Um, and they they said that they they'll be producing fuel, uh, uh, liquid combustion fuel cars for foreseeable future. Would them advertising those kind of things fall under the misinformation disinformation bill, where you know it's a really strike to the government, it's a blow to the government and a blow to the renewable? Um, you know, the pro-renewable sector that um, these major car companies, well-respected car companies, Ford Motor Company, Toyota even, you know, um, moving away from the EV, would that be... For them broadcasting that on TV and um, in their uh, on their social media, on internet, on their website and stuff like that, would that be censored?
3: Well, it's difficult to say and, and really... The thing is what will be censored won't be up to some government bureaucrat making a conscious decision. That's the scary thing. It's like Rise of the Machines. It's going to be either some automated algorithm that will just Mm. determine whether something's too spicy or it will be some stressed-out Twitter or Facebook executive who just has to make a decision about what they want to have on. And in anything like this, you're going to have what the law actually prohibits and then you're going to have the chilling effect of what the law prohibits around the edges. So it will go further than what is actually described in the bill because the cost and the risk of getting caught up in um, breaching the provisions of the bill will be so high that digital social media platforms will err on the side of caution. So it will mean that what will be true will be what will be uncontroversial. Um, As for electric vehicles, look, the libertarian position is that more power to people like Elon Musk and Tesla if they want to make electric vehicles, if they want to buy them, great for them. Um, No bans, no subsidies is our policy on all of these things. But... That includes no-picking winners from the government um, in a financial subsidy sense or in an information um, sense that they're sort of trying to push this narrative, as you say, to sort of interfere with the market to try to almost fix the outcome. And that's what they've done with renewables in the energy sector. They've said, oh, look, you know, um, renewables are the, the... Cheapest thing, coal shutting down. Why would we invest in coal? Why would we allow coal when the market's not choosing coal? So like the market's not choosing coal because you're basically destroying their social licence and heavily subsidising their competitors. So why would you run a coal-fired power station in the face of government opposition, basically? You're not just competing in the market against your other coal-fired power station competitors. You're competing against the government trying to exterminate. So private companies won't do that just because they believe it's the right thing or they believe there's risks of renewables. They will just go in the direction the government pushes them. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there are a lot of things that will end up falling within this potentially that aren't even what the government specifically has in, in the rules, but they, it will go beyond that, and I think that's intentional. That's a feature, not a bug.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, so There's a couple of really good comments in the chat. Yeah. I'm just going to read them out. First one is Benjamin commenting on really what Adam was talking about. Volvo said it takes seven years for an electric vehicle vehicle to produce less co2 than a conventional fueled
2: equivalent vehicle so that's a, a very i've got a comment thing. for that as well so um i've i actually had the report benjamin i actually had the report sent to me regarding the c70 or cx70 or whatever it is that's the uh the volvo um four-wheel drive suv thing that they've got right and They're only producing the battery operated car because there's a market for it they know that it's not They in their report it said it's not it's not better for I wish I had it. I probably still got it somewhere, but um, they knew that it's not going to be more efficient. They know it's going to actually be pretty much worse or there's more that goes into it to make it than a regular car. And the funny thing is, is what is the expected battery life from one of those vehicles? And does it also include the fact of disposing and destroying and recycling those those parts? So if the car, it takes seven years for the car to become carbon neutral, i.e. repay back its debt. But then you've probably got about three years, if that, left in the battery life where it's usable. So three years of of carbon free emissions, even though it's being charged by at the moment by you know cool. coal-fired fire, right? So it's still producing emissions anyway. It's just in a different spot, it's just not coming out the tailpipe. And the second and the other third thing is is then you get a ten year life. Then that whole car has to be destroyed because they don't rip the battery out it's they're normally chassis mounted it's part of the structural system of the car so you don't ever and it's a unibody so you're not ever you're never separating the body from the car taking the battery down you know and and if you have
3: a car accident the insurers won't insure it because it actually disrupts the integrity of the of the unibody exactly
2: correct so the whole basically it's a it's a it's the disposable car now talk to me about this right so we've got a standard um engine car a combustible engine car okay from the 1950s okay it's been made it's been produced it's well maintained it's been rebuilt it's been remodeled it's 100 years old and it's still driving okay you can't tell me that that's more not as not as it's not as wasteful and it's more efficient and it's far more efficient than than any of these volvos and things like that they're going to get thrown away after seven to ten years because let's face it you just can't do anything with them
0: after that, you, you're spreading too much misinformation and disinformation. Yeah, out, that's remember. dangerous. We're going,
1: to, we're going to have <laughs> <time> <laughs> going to get the, You're going to get the podcast shut down. Hey, energy, look, my, just, and, uh, the
2: renewables, no, and energy right. was my thing, my, my bag. I loved, I love talking about it because it had cars yeah. involved and
3: stuff. So you know, you and, get all this. And, these and, and look, let, let's look at another example. In California, the government has basically flagged that it's either already introduced or will be introducing a ban on sales of new uh, petrol vehicles. So, so, basically, they're, they're saying, oh, shit, this hasn't worked. You know, we've, we've been pushing this for 10, 15 years. People aren't getting the message. We'd better actually modify the market and prevent people from accessing them. So, what's going to happen is cars that people want to drive, which are combustible vehicles for all the reasons you've said, are going to go absolutely crazy in value and you're going to get a massive distortion of the market. You're going to get people, you're going to get, car sale tourism, where people are going to go to other states outside of California to purchase, a, uh, you know, a used or older vehicle that falls within the requirements and they're going to be, you know, uh, blockade running and getting into California with these old cars. It's just going to be an absolute nightmare. And government just has this constant belief that it can pull levers and change human behaviour, and that's just, not, um, that's just not how it works. Um, on ACMA... Just as a a point, um, while we're talking about it, at the moment, the status quo with ACMA is that it has basically been... uh, I don't want to say shelved because I don't want to make it sound like the the pressure or the danger is off. What they've done is they've basically withdrawn the bill. They've said that they are going to be overhauling the draft bill after um, massive pushback. So there was something like 26,000 submissions to the consultation for the ACMA bill. Uh, it took them about four months to process and go through all those submissions, and I'm certain that they did not expect that volume of uh, participation, and that they did not expect the overwhelming negative response. And the minister has basically said that they're going to consider putting protections for religious exemptions in there, and that that's the basis on which they've withdrawn it, and they're going to come back to the they're going to come back to it after after they've gone back to the drawing board, hopefully. That means that it just never comes back because sometimes with with as you guys would know from having been around politics a little while and looking at how canberra works sometimes governments will use this kind of announcement to just crab shuffle away from something quietly and just hope that nobody notices when it just doesn't resurface we're obviously going to make sure that's not the case if it doesn't come back or even better if they try to bring it back in the federal election we're gonna have an absolute field day that would be I hope they're that foolish um, they might be but basically I want to share a story with you guys that I reckon you will really get a kick out of. So we made a submission to that ACMA um, consultation as a party, the Libertarian Party, and for some reason I don't normally do this. I actually kept the receipt from the submission because normally i just, you know, I say you want to save the receipt and I'm like, no, nah, I won't do it. And this time I happened to save it. And the day after they announced that they'd actually published all the submissions, I got an email from a party member and they said, oh, where's our submission? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, oh, the ACMA thing is saying all well, the submissions are up, but I can't find the party submission. And I was like, you must be kidding me. So I went and had a look at it, and sure enough, no Libertarian Party submission up there. So I wrote an email to the email address that was on the consultation thing saying, you know, what the hell, here's attached my receipt, and I put a um, tweet out on our ex-account the party main account sort of saying, oh, it's a bit weird. You might want to check and see whether your submission is up because ours wasn't. And... About 15 minutes later, and this was on a Thursday, it's the 6th of January, on a Thursday night at 6.45pm, I got a phone call from the head of the Information Integrity Unit who were basically doing the consultation for the ACMA bill. So these public servants called me during their Christmas shutdown at nearly 7pm at night, 15 minutes after I've sent this email and posted this tweet, and he was, like, panicked. He was basically saying, oh oh, you know, it was just an oversight and the file, the submission came through, but there was no file attached and it wasn't, we weren't trying to do anything, please reassure your colleagues. And he was right. just like absolutely panicking. You could just hear it in his voice. But they obviously, this email must have come through from me and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall and see escalate, you know, like those, we see the red lights start flashing. And it's, <laughs> wow. you know, but Basically, yeah. So I actually, so they are that worried about it and they are that sensitive about it that, you know, a minor party criticising and not having that. Firstly, I'm certain that if we hadn't said anything, that we would never have had our submission lodged. Um, I'd encourage anyone to have a read of it. We had a bit of fun with it. Um, and he said wouldn't to me... Wouldn't that be an the automatic
2: floor, process? If you lodged you the submission, so. it wouldn't have been... Like, it should have just gone bang and uploaded straight to the...
3: You would think so, but that, that shows you that obviously there was a sensory or a... Uh, being physically processing. deleted. There's but obviously a processing step in between the submissions being made and then the submission's being uploaded. But um, before the conversation ended, he said, oh, well, you know, you've got to understand that the minister's got to do something. They, they, you know, we have to respond to this. The public want us to do something about misinformation. I said, well, you obviously haven't read our submission because you know we disagree. And I said, the beauty of a democracy is we're free to disagree. And then I hung up the phone. <laughs> but, uh, it was just surreal. Like, it was probably, in all my involvement in politics since 2009, it was the strangest conversation I've ever had. And it was... Just goes to show um, the bubble. Is, this is something they are very nervous about, and they are very uh, vulnerable to. And I think if we can keep the pressure on, and if this act does look like it's going to resurface or sort of gets floated again in a new draft form, um, if we really just uh, basically pounce on it straight away and put as much pressure and opposition on it as possible, I think after the the voice referendum, the government in Canberra might not be keen for another fight. Of that magnitude
0: before the election. well, they we 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 know they were overwhelmed with submissions, and I know they they tried not to release them. So hopefully, they do back away from this legislation, and that's my gut feeling. I don't see this being coming to the light of day, and if it does, the next government, if if liberal if the liberal party want to get into government, or or any of the other parties want to push. A policy we're going to repeal this that I think they're on a uh, election winning uh, platform there but we're getting some really really good comments in the chat um from Benjamin and Rob and Melissa but and Graham as well Graham's always um putting really good comments in the chat and he yeah. he made this comment a little bit back he said letting go of the myth that it's about liber- uh, labor versus liberal is the first step towards clarity it is and has always been people versus authority and I'll go to I'll go on Twitter and I'll you know talk about this legislation. I'll get these responses from these people who will, who will say, "Well, if you're not out there spreading misinformation and disinformation, then you've got nothing to worry about." <laughs> well, okay, but who's determining? Yeah, I,
3: I think we heard that through the the Nazi Germany period. I think it might have been you know. <laughs> There's uh, plenty of times in history where they said, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to worry about. So, yeah,
0: this is the thing people on the other side of politics, Labour people, Greens people, they should be just as concerned about this legislation as anyone. Uh, any any of us, because it, it, who's pulling the levers? You know, do you think you're going to have a Labor government for the rest of Australian history? No, it's it's going to go back to Liberal at some point or another. Absolutely, party the wheel always turns. Turn.
3: But that's, that's that one thing the left the left can never understand that history is not a straight line. You know, like they think that it's the constant march of progress, and they think that you know that the, the wheel will never turn, and people that they disagree with will never have their hands on the levers of what they've created. And Spike Cohen, who's a great friend of the Libertarian Party, who's the VP in 2020 in America, he has a great saying where he says, laws you vote for and approve will be used by people you hate for reasons you disagree with. And I think that's very true. You know, you you can't... Government's a dumb beast. It's a weapon. It's not something that has a mind or a conscience. It's something that can be used by anyone who gets in control of it. So, um, yeah, look, I I totally agree with you. And hopefully we can... um, Sort of move to at least win this fight. It will certainly not be the the war, but a battle we might be able to win. I think.
2: Well, you know, it, as I said, as I said, like the, the narrative is not the narrative by the government is not always the one that you follow, and that's what we were saying. We were saying that we've been saying that, Stephen, from the first federal election that we ran in you know that the, the narrative is the narrative that's going now is not the narrative that's going to be in the future and and you're saying like you know you should be voting people should be voting for the for the for the parties that want freedom and want free speech and want all the benefits of a proper democratic society not for you know this social this is socialism 2.0 like censorship and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, don't understand. I can't understand why even any of this gets tabled or aired in a de- in de- democratic country. I'm not one for really banning stuff either, but mm-hmm. anything that, that 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 takes away your liberty um, is basically socialism.
3: Well, one of the things we made a point of in our submission was that the left should oppose this bill because if, if this bill was in place when you had the Iraq War, when you had the Tampa children overboard, all these things I can think of, like, without even trying, I can think of a whole host of things that the left would be protesting about and, you know, going off their off their tree. If Peter Dutton, you know, used this bill to do anything, they would be like, it's fascist, he's a dictator, he's, you know, using this to suppress us, all this stuff. It's like, it's, so it's fine when it's what you guys agree with, but you're not thinking long-term. You're not thinking about what happens when the wheel turns and when someone else decides to use this. And I say when Peter Dutton uses it because even though the Liberals have now said they'll oppose it, they haven't said they'll repeal it if they get elected. And the Liberals are always great in opposition... But not so good when they uh, get their turn. They, they sort of, they sometimes freeze the pendulum, but they very rarely swing it back the other way. I'm not sure if you've noticed
0: that. Um, you've really <laughs> dug into this legislation. Oh, <laughs> is, is, is there a, is there a mechanism in the legislation for a content creator to appeal a decision that is made against them? Like if if they're if they're censored or if they, if, if a platform censored, is there any mechanism to protect their their ability to create content and their freedom of speech?
3: Well, no, there, there isn't really because the law, the ACMA law will be enforced. So it will mandate social media and digital platforms to impose their own rules. So it will be like two layers removed. So the government isn't stopping you from putting this content on. The government is stopping social media and digital media platforms from allowing you to put this content on. So it will be like now where Facebook gives you a strike, you can appeal that strike. If the basis of your appeal is I disagree with the law, You know, YouTube's probably not going to, you know, repeal that strike. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, I think that the only thing we can do is, A, fight as hard as we can against the legislation and, B, as you guys have done, start to diversify and create parachutes away to platforms that are likely to stand up to this. And platforms like Rumble and, you know, Telegram and platforms like this, they're they're not necessarily... I mean, they they are great, they support free speech, but they're doing it because they can see there's a market for that, yeah. They can see that there's a group of people who value free speech more than they value censorship. And so they've created a platform that that is their selling point, that's their market. They know that if they complied with these legislations and rules in any way, that they would completely lose their following yeah. and their reason to exist. So they would probably rather be banned in Australia and they would get more support from other countries. And, 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 the, and the other big joke of all of this is the government isn't considering, um, you know... Um, VOIPs and web tunnels and other ways that you can get around very easily, geo-blocking and these kinds of restrictions. So in the same way as people living in North Korea can sort of get around the censorship bars and people in China can get around it, like Jurassic Park, the truth, freedom will always find a way. You, you're not going to be... This, this law, even if it was passed, won't be effective. So... And that's that's at the end of the day, I think... Um, what the real answer to your question is,
0: Stephen. Uh, what do we do next? What can we do? I mean, I think a lot of people did the right thing by uh, making submissions and that put pressure on the government and they don't like that. They don't like people getting involved and in, in putting submissions to them, arguing against them. And hopefully they do retreat away from this with their tail between their legs. But what can we keep doing? What? How do we keep the pressure on and, ma- and make sure we send a message to the government? Hey, we're not having any of this.
3: Well, look, I, I know a couple of the comments I've read, in the, yeah, VPNs and listening in the comments are just the VPNs. That's what I you could see, I was, trying, I was struggling to think of the acronym because I've had a very long day. But um, something you guys mentioned earlier and something that I've seen in the comments a bit is this idea that minor parties should work together. And I'm a really big believer in that. I think that there's a lot of shared, shared values and shared interests. We don't agree on everything, but there are some really significant core Like, we share many enemies in common, if nothing else. Yeah. And I think that with something like this, it's an important enough issue that really, whether it be Ralph Babbitt and Malcolm Roberts and Libertarian Party representatives, you know, we hopefully soon we'll have lead Senate candidates endorsed, all that kind of thing. I think this is an issue that's important enough for people to put aside partisan differences and to really present a united front, whether it be through some kind of working group or action group, to sort of do one um, sort of unified opposition to this in terms of petitions, in terms of all that kind of thing, it might not make a difference, but it might. And I think that on questions like this, it would be foolish and it would fall short of what our members and supporters expect of us to not work together and to not try to oppose what is just fundamentally wrong and against not just the interests of minor political parties, but the interests of all Australians, even if there's some Australians that don't see that their own interest is at stake. So I I think that one thing we can do is what we're doing now, have representatives from uh, minor parties speaking with each other, uh, identifying things we have in common and trying to work together where we can.
2: Well, I know Stephen said this and... You know, oh, sorry. I'll let Stephen say what he's going to say first. Go, go for it, Stephen. No,
0: no, you go because I, I wanted.
3: You, you guys are like I heard in the intro this is hundred episodes in. You guys are starting to get like the married couple vibe, where you know what each other are going to do before
1: you. No,
2: Stephen. Stephen has said many times in the past, and like I have also agreed with him. You know, when I can get a word in edgeways. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the there. Yeah, um, is that um, you know on the ground level we did the minor parties did work together and that's where probably the change is going to come from, from the new blood coming through the, through um, the uh, minor parties and getting used to working together. You know, we've got friends from, like, I speak to Gemma and, um, um, I had his name on the tip of my tongue. Victor Tay. Tay. Sorry, Victor. Victor Tay. I had, you know, I spoke to those guys and I speak to them like often, you know what I mean? So if, If one of us were to get elected or whatever it was, uh, council, state, federally, it doesn't matter, and a few of us get in, all of a sudden we've got these little networks working to each other. We know where we're from. We came from the ground up. Um, So I think that's where you would see um, a lot of collaboration in the minor parties, especially the right minor parties, you know?
3: And and look, you know, the nature of the beast a little bit, perhaps perhaps slightly less so with our party because we don't necessarily have that personality who was the founder who sort of really is still very involved in the day-to-day running of the party. So we're a party that's kind of doesn't have necessarily that person. But whether it's Clive in the UAP or Pauline in One Nation, I've seen a few of your podcasts, Stephen, we've spoken about this, sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect and there's a bit of a separation and that's normal um, and there's there's always going to be that uh, removal or separation between your, your top leadership and the people on the ground. But I do think that to the extent that we can make what we do in political life, more about values and our beliefs and trying to do what advances our policies rather than be about personalities. And it's a bit like sometimes minor party politics, and I, I had a good chat with former Senator Bob Day about this um, last year. Minor parties to, the, to you know, to the left of the Greens, and so I'd say centre and right, I don't necessarily think of our party as a, a right-wing party. I think it was as a, a centre party. But we're all sort of in this almost Mexican standoff thing sometimes where everyone's sort of got a a gun drawn and kind of pointed at each other, kind of pointed at the government, but everyone sort of thinks that if you can hold out long enough, one of us is going to be the next Greens, to the right or to the centre. And I think that's something we really need to, as people involved coming through and sort of communicating to our top leadership, um, that's something we really need to to fight against. I think that's unhelpful and it's a bit of a divide and conquer that the major parties rely on, not just in the process of getting people elected, but if you look at what happened the year that Clive got about three or four representatives in, it was Ricky Muir, Glenn Lazarus, Jackie Lammy and a couple of others, the, the swamp is real. Canberra is an incredible machine and it cut those people apart and separated them from each other and told them that they would have got elected anyway and they didn't need Clive and they certainly didn't need each other. And suddenly you have four people you can buy off and manipulate and, you know, so the, the system will respond and will try to defend itself and I think... We would be foolish not to be aware of that and not to sort of at least collaborate and work together where we can
0: well that's a, that's probably a good way to bring me to uh my next question and it's a bit of a long winded question but and i i I'm developing a habit of of asking a devil's advocate question just to stir things up a bit but this is more about um trying to understand. The Libertarian Party, and you've advocated very strongly for the Libertarian Party in this interview. But when you guys were back uh, as the Lib Dems, you weren't really confined. Like you, a lot of people were like, okay, well, they're disaffected liberals, or they stand for, uh, you know, maybe what old school liberals used to stand for. But now, and you, you yourself said that you advocated strongly to change the name to the Libertarian Party. But I feel now you're in this box. You're in the libertarian box, and a lot of people on the outside don't quite understand what libertarianism really is. And Adam and I, Adam might be, you know be better at understanding it than I am, but I really found it difficult to understand the libertarian. Uh, f- you know, the ideals. And I'll give you a few examples. We had Birchall Wilson on the um, uh, on the podcast a couple weeks back. He was a libertarian candidate in Bathurst mm-hmm. and he's an, also an economist and it was a fabulous interview. I encourage everyone to go. He's a very and, bright uh, man. Yeah. He's very smart. And he did some really intelligent uh, ca- um, uh, calculations on how immigration has affected housing affordability. And he said if, if they'd stop immigration in the 1970s, House prices would be forty percent low, and I said, "Okay, Virchel, that's really good. Like, you know, it's, it's really good information to know." But you, you represented the Libertarian Party, and don't they support open borders and a free society? And he said, "Well, that is true. That's more of an American Libertarian stance, but I'm more of a Paleo Libertarian." And Adam right. and I, Adam and I, were like, "Okay, what the hell's Paleo Libertarian?" We didn't get an opportunity to ask him. Another example is I was on a, a Twitter Spaces. Uh, I was listening to a Twitter Spaces. You had John Raddick there. And a few of the the executive, and they're talking about privatizing uh, in, in, you know, state utilities and taking it away from the was, state. Was that
3: was that not to interrupt your question? But was that the test one the night before the actual one that got like? No, the, I think this uh, is was... the actual one the following day because they did they did a test one without realizing it would go public and it got like yes. all these people.
0: <laughs> this is the this is the one the next day, so yes. uh, so they're talking about uh, you know privatizing the courts and the police and the health services and a whole bunch of things. And I said, okay uh that that's fantastic but what's to stop companies like BlackRock, state street and vanguard from coming in and buying up all your police stations and your courts and all those sorts of things so i guess you know and, and then also the last thing is what as well is he had uh john raddick who we've had on this show twice and uh you know a lot most of the time i agree with what he's saying but he got up in his maiden speech and he starts talking about anarcho-capitalism and you know, we might we might see we might see what anarchocapitalism really means in Argentina now, but no one really knows what length it will go to. I guess my question is: I feel that somewhere you have to draw the line. There needs to be some sort of government regulation or or government, uh, you know, um, legislation to keep society in check. But with this libertir- libertarian philosophy. I feel like there's no line. And once you get to a certain point, the, you guys kind of go into territory where you kind of make it up as you go along. You, you know, oh, I, you know I'm, I'm, I'm not that sort of libertarian. I'm this sort of libertarian. Or, you know, we, you know, we haven't thought about that yet. Or just these arguments start coming up. So more just for me to really understand mm. libertarianism and, and why we should support the Libertarian Party. This is your opportunity to maybe clarify some of the things I've just raised.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I really appreciate that. And I think the first thing I would say is that the fact that that question has come up and that we're able to ask that question or that you have to contend with that question of what does libertarianism mean wouldn't be the case if we hadn't changed our name. So I agree that the name change is a little bit confronting, it is a little bit uh, radical, and it isn't going to necessarily be a term that people hear for the first time or, in your guys' instances, you've heard it many times before and you are probably closer to it and have more examples of actual libertarian people and the sort of spectrum of libertarianism you guys are probably some of the most informed people in the country who aren't libertarians about libertarians so but I think that's the first thing to note is that it's a conscious decision to force people to contend with their ideas not in a way that's confrontational or exclusive or trying to alienate people and say if you don't believe that government is illegitimate and taxes theft and you're a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist like John Ruddick or Javier Malay you know if you if you many people in the libertarian party occupy a view that is very similar to what you just expressed that there would be a night watchman state or a a minichist type of situation and if you look at our policies that we took to the last federal election the freedom manifesto the freedom manifesto didn't advocate abolition of government it advocated steps towards cutting waste um, controlling government spending, reducing regulations, increasing people's freedoms. Same thing with John Ruddick's campaign, which was probably edgier and pushed things more, as is John Ruddick's style. You've met him and you know him well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he doesn't yeah. hide that. He's someone who loves boldness and thinks that it's better to um, pitch to the 5 to 10% of people who would be attracted to that. And I think you can look at the results he got in the New South Wales state election and see that there's certainly some merit to that. But, again, his... Um, sort of 10-point manifesto was talking about about capitalism, coal, cuts, regulating and... or not regulating, but limiting and restricting the size of government. And I like to put it like this. If you've got people and you're on a bus, right, the bus has 20 stops. Anarcho-capitalists want to go to stop 20. You guys might want to go to stop 15. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't get on the bus and go through the first 15 stops together. And I think that probably goes back to what I was saying is... I don't think that to engage with libertarian as an idea um, or even necessarily to be a member of our party, you need to necessarily agree with everything that someone like John Ruddick or Javier Malay or myself, I'm going to out myself, I I am an anarcho-capitalist, but I'm also an incrementalist. And I believe that if you don't start because you are waiting for the perfect and letting that be the enemy of the good, then nobody wins except the state and except our shared enemies in the uni party system. So I this,
0: think that- this is one thing that I struggle with the liberal Party as well they have this term oh we're a broad church well mm. to me that means okay well you just believe in everything and and where do you what what are your core values what are your core ideals so I think I think the libertarians are pretty good when it comes to to core values to a point yeah. but uh, a notable person I won't say who they were they were trying to recruit me to the libertarian party and I said the same I, I brought up similar arguments that I did. To you just then and he said well we in the libertarians believe that if you're 80 percent on board with us then you you should be a libertarian i said well what about the 20 percent and when you're in government there's going to come times where you need to address policy in that 20 percent range or the, in these issues and so that that's where i'm struggling with overwhelmingly i probably agree with a lot of the things that the party stands for but there's this murky area There's this murky area where you talk about anarcho-capitalism and you talk about paleo-libertarianism and you talk about all these other things. uh, There needs to be more definition for me to to finally get on board.
3: Yeah, I understand. And I I think that we're probably not in this format going to necessarily get that level of clarity, Mm -hmm. but it's a conversation I'm happy to continue. And I think that as we get more libertarian representatives elected, that will be a big part of their job, is to explain what our ideas look like in practice and to explain what it means to be a libertarian. And I think the the fundamental thing that we should um, perhaps finish that part of the conversation on is is this. The difference between, say, the Liberal Party, um, who you might agree with 80% of and 20% disagree, and the Libertarian Party, is that the 20% you disagree with will never be forced on you or taken from you by coercion. So if, for instance, you were someone who believed that abortion was wrong and should never take place, then a libertarian government, while they might permit abortion more than you would if you were in government or you would want government to do, would never force your taxes to pay for it and would never mandate it or have it be state-funded. So you have this realisation, I think, increasingly, and I'll give the example of we have many people, Victor, you used this as an example, and others like Jenna, like who are people of faith who join the Libertarian Party because they can see that the way things are heading... It will soon not be possible to hold and live religious values if the government is the arbiter of what is fair and right and just. And you've seen in Victoria, Daniel Andrews has been consistently attacking um, people who hold religious beliefs, Um, things like the conversion therapy bans and all this sort of thing, basically saying there's, there's there's a line where he will essentially enforce the values of the state on you as an individual, he won't permit you to have a space where you can disagree with that policy, and he'll enforce that on you by government. Whereas with the libertarian view, um, and ACT is a good example of this in New Zealand, you've got a junior coalition partner who the main party, their equivalent of the Liberals, needs to govern, and already you've seen them use that junior coalition uh, partnership to enforce cuts to certain um, woke agendas and ideas um, to remove the ban on smoking um, past a certain age um, of birth. These kinds of things are the sorts of things you could expect if you saw the Libertarian Party rise to the point where we could act as a conscience for both major parties. And I suppose what I'm saying is if there's things that um, exist within the spectrum of Libertarian philosophy that you're not... Um, quite comfortable with, as Rob's just very helpfully said in the chat, we're going to take over and leave you alone. So, yeah, it's Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretty good timing. Thank you, Rob. And it's uh, very much the case. I, mean, I think it's really about allowing each person to live their values and work on their own life project. Harvey I said that recently. It's, it's commitment to and respect for the life project of others. Um, so I think that's the fundamental view. The fundamental view is more freedom. The fundamental view is an instinct against greater regulation and to decrease the size of government, and an instinct that you are the best person to spend your own money and that the government shouldn't be a 50% partner in your paycheck. Yeah. So I think if you have a radical true north, then the compromise you end up in in the process of government is going to be much better than if you start with a compromise, which is what the Liberal Party do look
0: we'll set to continue doing well we uh, we're not about silencing people on this platform we like a we like an open discussion like this and hopefully we can explore this whole libertarian angle a little bit more because look i'm not a, a, it's not about attacking you or attacking your policies or anything like that it's about understanding them and, and trying to get it i guess in my head and as you said adam and i are politically involved and, and we um, i've followed politics for a very long time and i've got to the point with the libertarians and i'm just like Okay, I understand the, the majority of what you stand for. There's just a few specifics that I'd like to flesh out a bit more. So hopefully we can have uh, more libertarians on the show in the future to, to, to finally uh, flesh this out. And sometimes that's part of the process. A lot th- Sometimes, you know, you hear stories of people that will be like, oh, well, I, I, I didn't agree with it in the past and it took me years and years and years, but now I'm fully on board and, and I, I, I'm, it's, in, it's in my head and I understand. So uh, hopefully we can have more of these conversations going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, uh, Jordan, please let us know how uh, people can follow you. I know you've got a website and uh, a Twitter. Is is that the best places for people to go and um, learn more about you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a personal website, so www.jordanditloff.com.au. Um, the party obviously has a Twitter account. Um, I also have uh, Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. And, yeah, would love if any of you listeners had any questions that have arisen from the conversation we've
1: had so far today or anything else we talk about
2: so that would be excellent awesome awesome. um Uh, we've got one more segment Stephen. before we go
0: no i just remembered it jordan this is the most important part of the ex-candidates it's a segment called build your own fantasy government now jordan you're in control of the next parliament of australia and you can choose five or six people. They can be current politicians, former politicians. They can be living or dead, experts in a certain field. They can be your neighbour, your mother, whoever you choose, anyone. There's five or six people to head up the next government of Australia. Who do you choose?
3: Okay, so it's like a fantasy football next yes, government. 100%. Okay, all right. So that's a very good question. I think, uh, look, Javier Malay, um, I think that... Harvey MLA would be great to put into action in a country where it hasn't gotten so bad that you've got three digit inflation. Um, I think that a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, we're never going to have a Harvey MLA because things aren't that bad here yet. And I think, well, wouldn't you want them to not be? Like, <laughs> wouldn't that's you want to try to prevent things from getting that bad rather than just saying that's never going to happen here because it's not that bad? And I always yes. add, yet. Yes. Um, so I think um, the current sitting state MPs, and I'm not just being a fanboy here, I think we've got outstanding state representatives. David Lindbrook and John Ruddick would absolutely be in my dream team. They're both incredibly effective advocates for libertarian ideas for different reasons. Um, John, as soon as you as you know, if you get him on this podcast, if you started talking about history or
1: <laughs> any, any sort
3: of any remotely historical topic, you're off, you know, like it's it be, be a whole podcast on its own. Uh, yep. David is someone who's very cautious and measured, but he's a very principled and very um, policy-driven advocate and um, ambassador for our, for our ideas. Um so I think certainly those so I've got, what have I got so far, three? Uh, look, I'll put myself in there. Uh, that's not an <laughs> ego thing, but I do think that I would bring a massive amount to, uh, to the role. I think I'd get rid of a few departments. There might be a whiteboard involved and some uh-huh. magnets. Yes. No, uh, now. Yeah, no. absolutely. No. Um, and look, I do think that someone like John Humphreys who was one of the founders of our party, he's uh, moved to, uh, he's moved outside of politics for a little while. He's focusing on Doing his real job as an economist, but he is a brilliant mind. He and I don't agree on everything, but he would be excellent to have. He would probably be the, the minister for the probably be the treasurer or minister for the economy. Um and yeah, I think that's probably my probably my top tier so far. That's excellent. awesome. Sounds good. All libertarians, right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. And before you think that I would just mean it's like a hive mind where we all just have the same, you know, creative. If you've ever been in a room full of libertarians, you'd know there'd be plenty of holding to account and arguments, and you know it wouldn't be—it wouldn't just be a groupthink scenario; it would be vigorously contested. <laughs> well, that's the point of it, isn't it? Indeed.
0: Excellent. Well, I I encourage everyone to head to your website, Jordan. There's some other podcasts that you've done there, especially going back into your backstory, which is very interesting. So I encourage other people to jump on there as well to uh, check that out. And uh, look, mate, thank you very much for coming on tonight. I think you're a wealth of knowledge and you're very articulate and you you have a good way of explaining things. So uh, all the best going forward and hopefully we can have you back on the show in, in future.
3: Yeah, I'd love that. Thank you so much for having me, guys. No awesome. worries.
0: Thanks, Jordan. And if you've enjoyed this, uh, please share it out far and wide. I say it every single time, but it, it is incredibly important that our audience gets behind us and shares this out. It helps a lot with the, uh, analytics. And I think this is a very important topic, this misinformation, disinformation legislation. Uh, we need to keep fighting this at every turn and pushing back and, and as Alan Jones used to say, maintain the rage. We need to maintain the rage on yep. this issue, not let, not give the, uh, the government a chance to, to sneak this one through so thank you everyone for watching uh we'll be back next week uh follow us on rumble youtube uh spotify all those places and we'll see you next time thank you very much
2: thank you